Oh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And today we're going to begin in the New Testament book of Philippians. So if you'd like to turn there in your own Bibles, it's found for you on page 10 in your order of worship there. Or of course, you can turn there on your own smartphone apps. Or if you'd like, you can use that Bible there in front of you in the chair, that dark green, uh, green well, that dark blue book is the Bible there. And if you want to use that one, it's found on page 921. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible with you at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. So last week, if you were with us, we were in Acts 16. We planted this church here in Philippi. And now we're going to start what is called an epistle that Paul writes to them. And we're going to be in this epistle, this New Testament book, until uh, early summer. So first thing is, what is an epistle? Because outside of church, you don't hear that very often. So I want you to think about if you go to your computer, maybe if you're a PC user, you use Microsoft Word, or if you go to Pages, if you're a, a Mac person, and you pull down those various templates. Well, there's a business letter, and there's a presentation, there's a resume, there's all sorts of stuff there. An epistle is like that. It was a template for communicating to people. It had a to and a from, it had the body of it, and it had, it had an intro, had a conclusion, and Paul grabs this form of communication and kind of adopts it, and so, the, so do the apostles who follow after him in writing the New Testament, and it becomes the main form of the New Testament. So most of the books outside of the four Gospels in the New Testament are actually epistles, official Roman forms of communication used to communicate. And I tell you that because sometimes we spiritualize these things, and we forget that this is a real book, a real letter, written by a real person to real people in a real church, in a real town in a real time and a real place. Okay. It's very real, all right? So, how real is it? Well, remember last week, or if you weren't here, a quick review. Acts 16, Paul shows up in this Greek town of Philippi. There's no synagogue, so he goes down to what's called a place of prayer, and he finds a group of women who somehow have had a connection, a, an encounter with the God of the Old Testament, and so they're doing the best they can to worship him without there being a synagogue. Paul preaches the gospel to them. Presumably, one of them named Lydia confesses faith in Christ, becomes part of this fledgling group, and she even hosts this church plant now in her home. As they are spending weeks together talking about Jesus in this city, we're told that this demon-possessed girl starts following Paul around, bugging him, harassing him, basically. So he turns around and sets her free in Jesus' name much to the chagrin of her owners, who promptly have Paul arrested, beaten, and put in jail. In the middle of the night, an earthquake sets them free. The Philippian jailer sees this happen and sees the miracle, and then Paul uses that as an opportunity to share the gospel with him. He becomes a Christian and part of this church plant, and then the very next morning, Paul forces a public apology from the Roman officials, basically ensuring public recognition and sanction by the authorities for this fledgling church. It's now safe and legal in Philippi to share Jesus because Paul forces this apology after the fact. And then he leaves. And now it's approximately 12 years later. Paul is in prison again. He's in Rome, probably on death row at this point, and he writes to this church because they have financially supported him throughout this whole time period, and he writes to thank them and to encourage them. 
So with that background, would you please now turn with me as we look together at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, this is God's Word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us in text, that we might know You exactly as You wish to be known. And so, Lord, as we come before Your Word, we do pray that You would give us submission to it, that by Your Holy Spirit, You would open the text up to us, apply it to our hearts, show us our great need, show us the beauty of Jesus, draw us deeper into Your Gospel. pray that You would do this, Father, by Your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we walk through that text together, as we just read it together, a couple things I want to notice from the very beginning is notice the five mentions of Jesus and Christ together. Twice in verse 1, then in verse 2, then in verse 6, then in verse 8. And this may be elementary for some of you, but let's just establish fundamentals, okay? Jesus is a name of a person. Christ isn't his last name. It's a title, right? It's the Greek word for Messiah. So here is Paul, the former Pharisee, the former persecutor of the church, showing his firm conviction right away that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the divine rescuer. And as we see right here, five times in eight little verses, for Paul, it's all about Jesus. And that's what we're going to see today, that Paul says that Jesus has established these Philippian Christians in himself, and that Jesus will then complete what he started in his love. And it's a love which they have modeled towards Paul, and Paul has modeled towards them. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Jesus isn't the mascot of the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And what we're going to see here is that on team Jesus, we wear the jersey, we play as a team, and we have a coach. So I want to start off the bat here with Jesus' jersey. The word, it happens so fast. It's such a short little phrase, you almost miss it. But right there, Paul says he's addressing in verse 1 to all the saints in Christ Jesus. In Jesus in Christ is all over Paul's writings. This is the key to Christianity. Salvation is in Jesus. When we say that we believe in Jesus, when the New Testament calls us to believe in Jesus, our Western ears hear that as, oh yes, here is this 
piece of knowledge. Here is this fact. I will give mental assent to this fact. It now is part of how I work. It's a fact I now have. But that's not what the New Testament means. When it says believe in Jesus, it's more akin to jumping into a pool. It's believe into Jesus. You are falling into, you are giving yourself to. You are not adding something about, you are giving yourself to something. And this is the essence of Christianity per Paul, is union with Christ in Jesus. For example, Jesus is the one who died to sin. In him, so have we. Jesus is the one who will be resurrected. And in him, so shall we be. This is called union with Christ. So that what is true of Jesus is true of us when we place our faith and trust in him. In other words, we get on team Jesus, we put the jersey on, and we never take it off. And so Paul wants to show us how powerful this is. He wants to show us what we get in Jesus Christ, what our union with Christ brings us. And the first thing he shows us, you notice in verse 1, he says we're saints. It's the word for holy. He actually says to the holy people, the holy ones in Philippi. And because he knows how we're wired, notice how he puts it, to all the saints in Christ Jesus and later on to the overseers and the deacons. Because he knows that we're going to say, oh, saints, those are the varsity Christians. That's not JV like me, right? But he says, no, 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 and the overseers and the deacons, which means all the saints is all y'all. Normal Christians. I know, we're none of us are normal, I know. But the normal, regular Christians, Paul says, y'all are saints, What if we actually believe that? I know our heart's like, I'm not holy. Yes, you are in Jesus who is holy. What's true of him is true of you. We are saints. Paul establishes our identity right then and there. It says, you have been made holy on the inside. And then what he will help us deal with for the rest of his book is that because we've been made holy on the inside, God works that holiness out of us on the outside so that we can actually look at our lives and say, hey, there's actually some holiness going on here. Who knew? Second thing we see, we're saints. We also get grace in verse 2 because of our union with Christ. The pleasure of God. The merciful kindness of God. God's love for the unworthy. We get that in Jesus because Jesus is worthy of it. That's what's gracious. We get what Jesus earned. That's what makes it secure. He earned it. What makes it gracious is that we get it when we didn't earn it, but united to him, we're counted as worthy. We get it. We get God's grace, and it sets us free from ever being anxious to impress him. Instead, we're grounded in his grace, and because we're grounded in his grace, we get the next thing he, he promises us here in verse 2. Peace. You get peace. Only God's grace in Jesus can give us peace. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we actually have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, the peace of God can then flood our life. This is peace at the deepest level. This is that, oh, it's going to be okay. For everything, it's going to be okay. That's the peace that has promised us in Christ. 
We also get in verse 2, we get God as Father. We're so used to hearing this, we forget how crazy, radical this was for its time. The idea of God as Father is a unique Christian blessing. Now, yes, I know we kind of all have this sense, well, if there is a God and He's the Creator, then we're all kind of His children by nature of His Creator. But biblically, the Bible doesn't tie the fatherhood of God to His actions as Creator. The Bible ties the fatherhood of God to His actions as Redeemer. In other words, because Jesus is the Son of God. Because Jesus gets to call God Father. And because we are united to that Jesus, we're then adopted and we get to call Him Father. Completely and utterly unique. It's as if in salvation Jesus comes to us as orphans and says, hey, here, come on, my dad's going to be your dad too, let's go. That's adoption. That's the fatherhood of God. It's uniquely Christian. It is ours because of the work of Jesus. We've been adopted in Him. And then finally, the last two things we see kind of go together. We see the Lord Jesus in verse 2 and then back to servants in verse 1. Paul's identity, what grounds him even while he is incarcerated is being a servant of Jesus. In other uh, epistles, Paul introduces himself as an apostle. Here, he and Timothy introduce themselves as servants. It's the word for slave, and it means what you think it does. Most often, this word was used for the household slaves. So you know, the, the closest thing we, we might have is like, you know, think of Downton Abbey. It's Paul and Timothy, Jesus, butlers. They get him ready for the day. They, everything is about making sure he looks good and he is good and everything's prepared for him. It's all about Jesus. We're his butlers. That's what he says, wearing Jesus' jersey, being in union with Christ. That's what it gives us. We're saints. We get grace and peace. We get God as Father. We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the good thing about this, though, we're not just fans. We don't just get to go down to the sports store and buy the jersey and put it on and start saying us and we whenever we watch the game. We actually get to be on the team. His next thing he shows us. He says that we're the fellowship of Jesus because we have fellowship in Jesus. And it's personal. Notice in verse 3 how Paul says, my God. He doesn't just say God. He says, I pray to my God. I was having a conversation just this week with someone from this church, and he was talking about his wife. It was very precious. And he said, my, and then he said her first name instead of saying my wife. I'm not going to tell you the name because you would know who it is. But it's such a, it was such a tender way to refer, isn't it? It's my wife. My, you know, as if I was talking, I said, well, my Nikki does this. It's a lot more personal than saying my wife, isn't it? And Paul here says, my God, points to a deep sense of personal connection, which he has because of his union with Jesus. This is why Jesus told us to pray as we just did to our Father, not just the Father or just Father. It was our Father because in Jesus we are personally connected to God as Father. He is our Father. And then Paul, to make it even more personal, it's personal with God, now it's personal with them. Paul says, man, when I think of all my remembrance of y'all, I must pause right here and remind you to read the New Testament like a Southerner. Every time you see Y-O-U, you need to think y'all. 
because there's like five singulars. The rest of them are all plural. So you'll be wrong those five times and it won't matter, okay? You'll be right far more often. And I know some well-meaning people out there said, well, every time you see the word Y-O-U in the Bible, you need to replace it with your name so you get the promises of God. Yeah, no, don't do that. Because it's not about you. It's about us. It's not about me. It's about we. Jesus died for a people. And so Paul says, the God's people, y'all, Every time I remember y'all, Paul loves this church. He thanks God for them all the time. He says, whenever my mind thinks about the church at Philippi, it's with profound gratitude. It's with profound love. Boys and girls who are still here, you ever gotten a letter from grandma and grandpa? You ever gotten an email maybe from grandma and grandpa? And that you can just tell how much they love you and how much they care for you? That's what the book of Philippians is like for Paul. He says, I just love the mess out of y'all. He says, I pray for you often, and it brings me joy to do so. Here's how we put it for you, boys and girls. Let's look together at your uh, verses 3 through 5 there at the middle uh, uh, verse, uh, page 10 there. Verse 3, three through 5 says this. Every time I think about y'all, it makes me thank God in all my praying for you. Praying for y'all is a joy because y'all have been in my prayers in the gospel since way back in Acts 16. See, Paul says, I've been praying for you for like 12 years, and I love you guys. See, Paul's joy comes from the partnership they have. It's the word for fellowship, their partnership together. I mean, think about this, how much of a close relationship this is. Because in our time, in our day, we have the tribalism of cancel culture is always out there as a threat, right? And it demands absolute conformity. But the church of Jesus Christ is a partnership. It brings joy. Even though we are not all the same people, we have unity. We don't demand uniformity. And in that, we have joy because we're a loving fellowship of Jesus. Remember, Paul is in prison at this point, probably on death row, and yet he has palpable joy at their partnership. And he's also landing on a major theme of Ephesians. Okay, Paul loves this church, and they love him, and he wants them to know prison has not robbed me of my joy. Paul talks about joy like 16 times in this short book. I think there's 104 verses in, in Philippians, if I remember right, and 16 of them talk about joy. It's that big of a theme for Paul. And speaking of joy, that's one of those Christian words we use a lot, don't we? But do we actually know what it means? You know, it's not exuberance. It's not being happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Introverts and quiet people can have joy. People sitting in prison can have joy. What is joy? Well, again, boys and girls, let's, let's help out mom and dad and everybody else. I bet we can do this. Okay? You can raise your hands at this point. Ready, boys and girls? Do you like sitting on mom and dad's lap? Raise your hand. Do you like sitting? I still do. I like it. I'm too big to, but I do. Yeah. You know that feeling that you have of just sitting there and being cuddled by mom and dad? You know, mom, mom and dad get that feeling too. In fact, in fact, it's really sad when you're too big or you think you're too big to sit on our lap anymore. But that's joy, that just quiet contentedness. I'm just so happy. I just I want to soak up every moment here. It's just, it's just fulfilled. That's biblical joy. And Paul says he has that in Christ and that we can have that together. I mean, you realize how big of a deal this is. Joy is balm to a skeptical, painful, scared, angry culture. Joy is balm. 
See, in Jesus, we can let go of our insecurity and have joy. We can let go of our fear of others and have joy. In Jesus, we have the full acceptance from the grace of God, and so his peace washes over us, and we can live in joy. And our neighbors are crying out for that joy. Oh, if you don't have that joy, don't you want that? See, this long-term partnership in the gospel with the Philippians is a source of Paul's joy. He says we've been in partnership together. It's the word for fellowship. It's the word for participation. He says, look, we are uniquely knit together in Jesus. When Jesus earned our forgiveness on the cross, when we place our faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord, we become united to one family. You get that? Because you're united to Jesus by faith, and I'm united to Jesus by faith. Guess what? We're united to each other by faith. That's the unity we have together. That's the fellowship, the participation we have. We're actually closer than a family because together we're in Jesus and he's in us. That's partnership in the gospel. And Paul rejoices that they've had this for over 12 years at this point. And he says that this partnership extends. He tells us that it extends to his imprisonment and to his defense and confirmation of the gospel. And in context of verse 7 there, what Paul is talking about literally is cash. I know we try to spiritualize this. No, he's talking about cash. They are supporters of his ministry. More than once, we know from two different references in the other parts of the New Testament, more than once they have sent him money when he needed it. So in a sense, the book of Philippians is kind of like that letter that a lot of y'all are getting this time of year is, you have contributed this much to our ministry. Thank you for your partnership. Right? That's what Philippians is to this church. Like, here you go, give this to the you know, Roman IRS when they ask. Here's your receipt. He writes to tell them thanks for supporting me financially. And he calls it a partnership in the gospel. But hold up there. Are you telling me that paying some missionary's bill is a gospel partnership? Yes, it is. In fact, the word partnership is used as the idea of being an investor in other places. So Paul, the way they would have read it is actually, you have been an investor with me in the gospel. Actual, real money. And Paul's situation is pretty unique. We know from historical documents how Rome did this when you appealed to Caesar and were waiting to have your final appeal heard by Caesar himself. Paul doesn't say imprisonment. He actually says chains. Because what it looked like was this. He was in a rented house that he had to pay for. He was getting three squares a day that he had to pay for. He couldn't leave, but he could receive visitors. Oh, and he was chained to a guard 24-7. So no privacy, no freedom. Some guy, or probably two or three guys in shifts, were chained to him all the time. Which means Paul hasn't shared the gospel in a marketplace, in a synagogue, on the street corner, in at least two years at this point. Now we can assume Paul has been presenting the gospel to you know, every guard, every visitor, every official. I mean, can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul? I got it, I got it, okay, right? And eventually, he's going to share it all the way up to Caesar. And if the timelines line up, most scholars think we're talking like Emperor Nero here, okay? Palpatine himself is going to hear the gospel from Paul. And so Paul encourages him, hey, I know I've been in prison, but guess what? It's been used for the gospel. Their support has been gospel ministry. You know, Sycamore gives a lot of money to ministry. 
to, to missionaries. I don't know if you know that or not, but we give 20% right off the top of our budget. Before we pay the electric bill, before we pay staff, we pay missionaries. Currently, our budget's a little over 1.2 mil. Do the math, 20%, it's a quarter of a million dollars, basically. But we give away to missions. And guess what? When y'all give more to the church, we give more to missionaries. That's how it works. And that's not you supporting us or them doing ministry. According to Paul here, that partnership means that that's all of us doing ministry together. And it brings joy in Jesus, Paul says. So, our union with Christ, we get Jesus' jersey, we get on team Jesus, and finally we get coach Jesus. I don't know if you saw it the other night, a couple Sunday nights ago, and Nikki and I happened to be flipping through channels and saw it actually happen live where that Buffalo Bills player had that crazy hit, put him into cardiac arrest and collapsed there on the field. If you haven't seen this, I don't, can't help you. It's famous news, right? But what, what came out afterwards, the fact that I thought was really amazing was it wasn't the higher-ups at the NFL. It wasn't even the Players Association. It was the Bills coach walking across the field to the other coach. And according to the article I read, basically saying, I don't care if we have to forfeit and it's the playoffs. I don't care. I'm not staying here and coaching this game. I need to go be with him. What are we going to do? Because that's what a coach does. Coach has his heart in his team. And what, he, and what Paul shows us here is what our coach gives us. The first thing he shows us is that we get love from Jesus. Look with me at verse 7 and verse 8. Paul says this. <clears throat> it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, it starts off a little weird. Why does Paul have to justify his feelings for them? Perhaps there was some question about his connection to them. You know, perhaps they think he only cares about money. We don't really know. Maybe there's some sort of conflict. We do know from what we're going to see later in Philippians, there's conflict in the church, you know. But the fact remains, you know, he's in prison. I mean, can't you hear that missions committee meeting? Um, How is he going to do missions from jail? Why are we still supporting this guy? You know, so there could be some conflict there. So much so that in verse 8, did you notice, Paul makes an oath. He calls on God to witness how great his love is. And notice what he does. He says, I love you with the affection of Jesus. He doesn't try to prove the affection of Jesus. He assumes they know that. What they don't know is his love. So he's going from what they do know, the affection of Jesus, to what they don't, his, and saying, I love you like that which is amazing. And Paul is opening up his heart here to show us who he really is. And if you know anything about the New Testament, if you've been on church a while, you, you remember this guy, Paul, right? Back in Acts chapter 8, he is what can only be described as a terrorist. It's in the text. Go look yourself. Acts chapter 8. He has official letters from the legal authorities giving him legal sanction to torture Christians. It's in the text. Go look. And he's excited, and he's giddy, and he's like, ready to get this on. Let's do some stuff, right? And now this same Paul says he yearns for them with all the affection of Jesus himself. The word for affection here is bowels or guts. Our modern Western way of thinking, this is facts, this is emotion. For them, this is emotion. Bowels is the seat of your emotions. And so Paul's saying, all the emotions that Jesus have has for you is what I have. 
In fact, we get our, our idea of gut-wrenching from this idea of affections being in your guts. Paul says what they know for certain, that Jesus has a gut-wrenching affection for them. And Paul says, so do I. Did you catch that? Jesus has a gut-wrenching affection for his people, for us. What if we actually believed that instead of like immediately dismissing it like most of us just did, right? It would change the world if we actually believed that. You realize that our culture is crying out for that kind of love. All the talk of equality and acceptance and tolerance, forget the excesses. Where it comes from is a desire to be accepted and loved and have this kind of affection in this kind of community. It's what people ultimately want. They want to be part of a community that loves. And we have it. Dear flock, we have that affection of Jesus together for each other because of our union with Christ. What our neighbors are longing for, we have Let's not withhold it from them. We have this love for each other because we have a love from Jesus. The next thing he shows us is that we have, we're loved in Jesus. Look with me at verse six. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, Paul writes to a church with growing pains. We're going to find out more about that later. There is conflict in this congregation. And Paul's not there. Paul can't fix it. Is he worried? Is he fearful? It's like, no, God's got this. They're loved in Jesus. And so Paul has confidence that God will see to their spiritual care. See, Paul wants the best for them. But he's incarcerated in Rome realistically he knows he may never see them again but he has peace because in Jesus he knows God will bring about to completion what he started in them you see dear Christian Jesus doesn't just address your needs for forgiveness back then Jesus gives you resources right now You are loved in Jesus right now. Our union with Jesus gives us the resources for everything we face right here, right now, where God has put us. It sounds so simple when you put it that way. That's what he's saying in verse 6. And if you don't know Jesus as Lord, I mean, wouldn't you like for God to have your back and all the stuff of life? That's the promise of verse 6. So I challenge you, look into your heart. Has God begun his good work in you? Would you like him to? You can be part of his family. Verse 6 is an invitation to let him begin that good work in you. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, he will begin and then complete that good work. So as we wrap this up, as we prepare for communion, I want to go back to the idea of being Jesus' servants, of being his butlers of Jesus, sort of. you realize that we're all servants of something. That we wake up every day and we give our life to getting something that we consider very important, prepared, safe, secure, honored. We give it our effort. We give it our thought. Something demands your activity. Something rules over your affections. Maybe it's sports. 
Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your desires, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your career, maybe it's your status, maybe it's another house or a bigger house. Think about your dreams. What is it that pushes you forward? You serve it. What is it that scares you at night and keeps you from sleeping? You're serving that too. You're a servant of those fears and those dreams, and you're not free. You're not at peace because you're so afraid you're going to fail your master. See, but when we place our faith and trust into Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Lord, he becomes our new master. He identifies us as servants. He is the Lord, which is a political term, meaning ruler. He is our ruler. See, and in his grace with this new master, we have peace because when we do fail him, he's already died to make it right. Your career is not going to hang on the cross for you. That second house won't die for your sins. See, but finding life as servants of Jesus is offered to us in the gospel. A master who's already died for you to make it right. A master who entered into our prison cell where we were slaves of sin and death, ripped the chains off, grabbed our hands, and led us out and said, hey, my dad can be your dad too now. That's the gospel. That's what awaits you in Jesus. Now, for those of you who are Christians, man, rest in your union with Christ. Drink up what it means to be in union with Christ. Like actually take time this afternoon or this week to think about what it means if, it, if, it were, if this sentence is actually true, that when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what's true of him becomes true of you. Rest in that. Wrestle with that. And for those of you who aren't Christians, you can confess Jesus Christ as Lord even now. You can be put into union with him. Don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for texts like this that are concentrated introductions to your gospel, where things just come so fast and so quick that it's, we had to wade through and just see the amazing grace. And Lord, we thank you that in your providential planning, this this passage about our union with Christ comes on a communion day when we participate physically in our union with Christ, where we chew on bread to remind us of the broken flesh that we are now in union with, where we drink pungent, shocking wine, where we're reminded of the blood of Jesus that we are now in union with. Oh Lord, we pray that as we have feasted upon your word, you will let us feast our souls upon Jesus Christ himself as we partake of the table. And Lord, we pray that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Even now, Lord, would you do your work? Would you stand at the tomb of our life and call us from death to life that we might repent and believe? We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.